to stop until you wise up and subscribe to Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we interrogate films previously described by other disparate and very loosely connected strangers as masterpieces. I am joined as ever by the randomly connected Roger. All right. Well, yeah, I, I should say randomly connected to me. He's very specifically connected to himself, I should say. Um, <laughs> today we have reached the year 1999. It's episode, oh, have I said what episode 52. it is? 52. 52. There we go. Our, our uh, post-retrospective um, episode where we actually look at films again. Um, and this week we are... Uh, I, I mean, I was going to do a short sort of plot summary, but that seems a bit pointless with Magnolia. Is it even possible? Uh, well, <laughs> I, to do a short plot summary would be to describe the entire film, I think. So, or, or just to over summarise and say stuff happens. Stuff happens to sad people in Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 epic, in that it's very long, Magnolia. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting one. I had interesting reactions to it. I'm going to say up front, if this had been the first one we did, I would probably not have done a second one. Uh, A a year ago, I really would not have got anything out of this film. Oh, interesting. Now, it's a little more complex. Okay, all right. Well, we'll delve into it. Magnolia starts with... um, uh, And it lost me a bit of this, I must say. An opening, uh, a very... Beautifully done and dizzyingly told story of three separate uh, coincidences. One um, being uh, a scuba diver being sucked up uh, into a, a firefighting plane and then dropped on a uh, dropped on a forest. The huge coincidence being that the firefighter was also in debt to the uh, and had assaulted a croupier who happens to be the scuba diver who gets sucked up. Um, the other coincidence being a, a man jumping out of a window managing to. Uh, in a suicide attempt, failing in the suicide attempt, but becoming uh, accessory to his own murder when his mum shoots him by mistake out the window. It's, it's very, uh, it's very cool stories. Um, uh, I suppose I'm dwelling on those a bit because if the whole film was more like this, maybe. Well, I, I no, I don't want to complain. It just feels like a slightly different movie that is yeah. not connected to the rest of the film. Yeah, I, I, very I think loosely. We'll, I think we'll come back to that because. Uh, yes. The the easy option would be just would be that he's hanging a lampshade on this stuff is just coincidence there is no story but I, I think there's a bit more to it than that. Well, I think so. Magnolia is a film that I feel like really wants you to analyse it more deeply. Hmm. Um, but we'll again we'll come on to that. As um, for the I, actual events, uh, the shotgun thing was definitely invented. There is a specific hmm. guy who invented it for the American Association of Forensic Science as an example of a complicated case in uh, in yes. the eighties, and then it it sort of spread. Um, the the scuba diver thing I don't think has ever happened. Because no. apart from anything else, the intakes on the planes are not that big. But that, yeah, that was my understanding. Uh, well, this is why I said it slightly. I've forgotten what the other coincidence was. Oh, um, the guy who was shot by Greenberry and Hill in Greenberry yes. Hill, which may well have happened, or something like it may have happened. Um, 
An awful lot of uh, people have been shot. So. Well, exactly. And a lot of people have got a lot of different names and live in Dor- uh, To me, that was just a coincidence and not very. Um, uh, which uh, I'm absolutely not supposed to say for this film, I suppose. But uh, it irritated me because it was slickly done and very well presented, but it was presented as facts. These things actually happened. And I knew, even as I was watching it this time, that was bullshit. These things were anecdotes at best. Um, yeah. And that's never acknowledged in the film. And it's more of a sin to me than the Coen Brothers opening a film with this is based on true events just as a joke <laughs> or as mm. a, a very loose I mean I suppose the Coens were right in the sense it was very loosely based uh, I'm talking about Fargo um, but he, yeah um, though, though also if the film had actually been about extremely unlikely things happening yeah but I don't think, yeah, but minor spoilers here I don't, I don't think anything end. here is wildly unlikely except as you say yeah the uh I mean, we'll come Event. on to it. It's not a spoiler. Well, we are going to spoil heavily, but yes. um, I'd rather talk about it when when we sort of come on to it naturally. But yeah, it, that's the only sort of fortian times kind of thing, if you like, that happened. And the whole opening uh, it irritated me because it's presented. It's really well done, extremely watchable, and fascinating, but all not true. And when you're presenting, look how am- these amazing things can happen, and none of them did. Mm. That pisses me off a bit, I'll be honest, because amazing yeah. coincidences and fantastic things do happen on the planet. You don't need to make shit up. But there we are. Anyway, that was my, yeah. the opening irritated me for that reason, but it also made me think, oh, I'm probably going to enjoy the process of watching this film, at least, because it's very slickly done. Mm. And then the rest of the film's very different to that. <laughs> um, so then we, you know, out of that opening, then we segue into many different characters. I mean, there's a dizzying opening sequence to um, uh, One is the Loneliest Number, where we just basically jammed full of information about uh, pretty much every one of these ensemble cast and given a very quick pracy or point in their lives Um uh, which I again I really enjoyed. I found it an, an amazing opening sequence. Mm. Um, I enjoyed probably more than the coincidence opening because it was like, oh, the story's starting now. Now I'm interested. There was also a thing that um, was originally part of the plan, apparently, but but they decided it it would just bog things down too much to try to show it. Which yeah. was this is all supposed to be happening in a very small area of the city. Oh, I see. So they're all very closely connected. Okay, yeah. which would. Exp- perhaps account for some of the coincidences because they are right on top of each other but yeah I, yeah I, I don't think it needs it in the end no i mean it's enough for me that they are the characters are all vaguely connected in one way or another and, and but i think you have to uh well maybe the key to enjoying magnolia to some extent you have to and understand as you probably will maybe about halfway through that it's never going to tie up any of these loose ends. It's just interested in spending time with these people. Yeah, and as, as I said, um, in fact, in our anniversary episode, we, ha- we had already decided to watch this film before we recorded that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think I, I have to regard it as a, as a naive style of, of film watching to say, you know, I'm, I'm just here for the characters and the story, because... If that's all you all you want here, you're, you're not really going to get it. You've got a certain amount of character, but you, but you've got very little of what you could call story. Yeah, and that's uh, that's difficult because then, you know, it begs the question, which I suppose it's trying to point out really is what what are we here for? I mean, so we have we have an amazing ensemble cast here, and I, I do 
uh, by amazing, I think they're all very good actors. Mm. I was going to say for the most part, but I, I genuinely think all of them are very good actors. There, there was only one really sour note for me, and it's possibly not his fault. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman as uh, Phil Palmer, the the, the nurse of, the, of yes. one of the people who's dying. Uh, I kept, well, but just because of the way he looks and the and, the, and his yes. tone of voice and so on, I kept expecting him to reveal his evil nature. <laughs> uh, he's a he, in, in many ways he's the most uncomplicated character in that he's a caring end of life nurse, and yeah. that is what he does for the film, uh, and he cares. And uh, yeah, I, so I I think I act because I, to me. Yeah, I, I I think it worked for me that that mm. performance. So it's a very good. But as you oh, say, it still worked. I I just had this expectation, which is yeah, not not necessarily the film's fault. And you know, I I don't know what what he was known for at this point. Uh, you, you you get some people he who are just known been, for I mean, villains and so on. Well, but. interesting. We had there's quite a few Cohen alumni here. In that we have Philip Seymour Hoffman who had appeared in The Big Lebowski. We have Julian Moore who'd been in The Big Lebowski as Linda. The kind of to me, sort of neurotic, sort of stereotypical, self-absorbed, uh, um, middle-aged, uh, entitled. I, I guess you'd call her a Karen nowadays, if if that's appropriate. Mm. Um, well, yeah. But... I don't know. I mean, her her big meltdown scene in the pharmacy. I I was entirely in sympathy with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I I don't know quite where we were supposed to be there. I mean, I feel like she perhaps goes a bit over the top, but you totally understand why she's yeah. she's under a huge amount of stress and she's being like. I mean, you know, yes, it is the uh, pharmacist's job, at least in the UK. I don't know about the US to say, you know, you, you you've got an awful lot of pills here, and and some of these would be quite dangerous if you took too many of them. Are, are you sure you want to be doing this? Because yes. that that's the thing that does genuinely save lives, and indeed. You know, she does attempt suicide with a miser. So She does, yeah. I mean, it's it's not... I think her overreaction, frankly, is because they're, they're kind of right to be checking because she has, at least at some point in her mind, that some idea that she's going to use at least some of these medicines. Yeah, um, I mean, she may not be planning it at this point, but... Yeah. Yeah, part of the whole overall stress experience. And, okay, so that's the thing I hadn't spotted. One of the um, elements of this thing is pairs. You know, we've got the two going die dying guys, we've got the yes. ver- various pairs of uh, characters and relationships between them. Well, we and have the, the, the two child prodigies, and all the great, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also um, Jim Curring, the, the, the cop, John, yes. John C. Riley. You can see him genuinely thinking he's being a good guy, and at the yeah. same time, you can see from some, somebody else's point of view, he really is being kind of an asshole here, you know? I, yeah, I, I wanted to talk. I mean, I, I think this is what I like about Magda. I mean, frankly, uh, it, so basically, we have this big ensemble cast, of, and we'll, I think we'll go through the characters like this because it's helpful. But I do, I do find the individual scenes very watchable and very mm. interesting. And uh, yeah, they have all these interpretations. Like, yes, on the face of it, John C. Riley, again, really nicely played, kind of, sort of gentle sort of bumbling cop um but yeah also being really quite creepy and abusing his position and 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 also using that to get close to someone with whom 
uh, frankly, the relationship just isn't going to work. I mean, I think you know enough about the two characters to tell that's probably going to be a disastrous relationship. Or that's what it seems to me. Maybe that's what I like, though, that it is open to interpretation. Yeah, I mean, similarly, I, I, I don't see anything in what we see here to say that Linda isn't going to have another suicide attempt in six months' time. Yes, exactly, yeah. Well, there's very little that actually gets resolved. It's short of... Um, uh, well, yeah, so I, again, I like John C. Riley. We have a... a R- reminds uh, me, actually, kind of um, uh, John Goodman, Walter Sobchak in The Big Lebowski. That, that same sort of, I'm, I'm always ready to be violent at the slightest provocation, for a different reason. But, th- yes. but it's, it's the same overall style. Yes, yeah, but done in a In fact, it, uh, it was interesting. I mean, um, a slight segue from the characters, but I do feel there are some similar t- similarities to the Big Lebowski in the sense that both of them kind of invite deeper analysis and don't give you all the answers on the surface and sort of want you to look further. I just feel the Big Lebowski is, is taunting you with it and it's like, <laughs> come on, let's see if you can find anything here. And Magnolia is almost desperate for you to do it that's how it feels to me if, anyway. if they'd come out of the opposite order i could almost have said the big lebowski was a parody of this maybe it was a parody of this style of filmmaking yeah i i agree with you it, it has a similar yeah I, I just i i mean i really i i really enjoy the moment to moment magnolia i mean it, it's noticeable what was the film we watched recently where you told me, to much to my surprise, that the shots were like every two seconds there was a change in Dark the City. shot? Dark uh, City. This is almost the opposite. I mean, most of these are long, lingering, rolling shots. Of there, the there's that, there's that thing going through the back of the TV studio, which I can't help but see as a callback to Goodfellas. Yeah, I, I, I can't. Any kind of tour I... I mean, it's good. I, I, it's very... Um, it really puts you in the moment and it really draws you in and I think it is uh I don't know if it's smart but it, I I don't object to that style of filmmaking mm. and again something about this style of filmmaking uh whether it's specific, I haven't seen any other of Paul Thomas Anderson's films I'd like to see Boogie Nights I'm not sure I'd, yeah well uh, a, a side note on the production of this basically the the previous film he had made was Boogie Nights and New Line said okay and what, the the way I see this is we don't really get this you know we, we 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 don't understand this film, but it's clearly made a lot of money, and <laughs> and so we're going to fund whatever you want to make next. And, this, and you the, do it again. And the, this is what he decided to make next. Now, whenever whenever a studio says that to a, a bunch of directors, they always come out with something completely out of left field because they think it's my only chance to do this. Um, yeah. I might never get a chance again. Uh, so, though, there were reports of, of audiences walking out when this came out in the cinema. Interesting. I mean, I uh, well. Yeah, it's it's an interesting film. Um, uh, well, we'll keep going through the characters for them. Maybe talk about the plot for them because we talked about Jim, uh, William H Macy again. How did you feel about him as as Donnie, the grown up um, child prodigy, uh, frustrated? I wonder whether it's um, again like like the Walter Subject characterization. Whether it's just I have known people who have built their lives around a grievance. Right, yes. And you can't say to them the thing that they need to hear, which is, yeah, you know, your grievance was entirely genuine, but your entire personality is now a person who has this grievance. And if you took the grievance away, you know, if, if you got yeah. the braces, if, um, as in one person, one person I know, um, they, they, ex- they expected transitioning to solve all their problems and they're happier than they were. Yeah. But, but it, it didn't solve all their problems. <laughs> yes. And uh, so you found so him, un- I, I, I found him uncomfortable? Yeah. And okay. 
again, like Sobchak, it, he's the sort of guy that I just wouldn't spend time with because I, I know how this goes and it never goes anywhere. Yes, it Which feels like... Which is entirely fair because everybody else in the film feels that way about him too. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> They're all well-observed and interesting characters. And I would say, to, to some extent, aside from Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, who is a bit more uncomplicated. Uh, but yeah, I, I found his performance... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I found him a frustrating character to watch and unsympathetic, and I don't think he's really supposed to be sympathetic desperately. But still, as with all good films, I still found myself caring a bit about him and what happened to him and feeling sorry for him. I'm glad mm. that he was sort of uh, rescued at the end by John C. Riley's cop. Well, I mean, um, he's not going to jail, but... Yeah, I mean, we know that he'll be in the same situation. Much like his... Um, salesman in Fargo, you know, if he hadn't gone to jail for that, he would have ended up in jail pretty soon anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a great performance again. We have danced um, a little bit around Tom Cruise, who is really the... Oh, yeah, he, he is the anchor here. and His yeah. role isn't, but... but... This, I, I think this is the Tom Cruisiest role I have ever seen. I mean, he, he, <laughs> the Tom Cruisiest role. He, he's parodying his own public image as well as the actual parody of the pickup art. I think there is a specific guy that they modelled it on. Um, yes, I, th- I think there was some audio tape or something that Paul Thomas Anderson heard. But, but yeah. particularly during the interview, um, he's parodying the Tom Cruise completely smooth but slightly weird public image yes. as well. Yeah, he, he and I, I think a lot of people. I, I, I certainly remember people talking about this. You know, this sort of era before he became the absolute star and was just a medium-sized star. Yeah. Um, that you know, yeah, yeah, they they like his acting, but there's just something a bit weird about him. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. To me, it's a performance that does separate it. In, I think he genuinely is a, a really good, maybe great actor. You know, because in this, he does all that. Um, Bravado, he does the interview note perfect, and then, you know, that bit at the end with his father when he's dying, uh, I... Which was apparently improvised. I was about to say, that is largely improvised, and that, frankly, is amazing to me, because it's a stellar piece of acting. Um, He just... He understood the character and what he would do. He doesn't sort of hit a wrong note at all. Mm -hmm. You feel like you understand the character. I mean, he's a really interesting character in that he comes across this total absolute dick um, misogynist pig but he's it's, he's more interesting he doesn't he isn't really as misogynist nearly as he comes across it's a very interesting I mean he's, he's spouting all this crap to people and, and probably creating a huge amount of it in the world but he mm-hmm. is a much more interesting complex character I, I think that as you say it's the it's kind of the central performance that, that pulls a lot of it together because he's um He's, you hate him so much at first, and then to come to feel for him at the end, I, I think that's just amazing. Bit of also, one very sensible business decision. He turned down the starring role in End of Days to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that was probably wise. Well, it, it, he'd just come off the back of Eyes Wide Shut, which may have been a less sensible business Yeah, I, I, I believe Anderson saw, saw him on the set there and said, this is the guy I want for this. Uh, and of course he had previously done, uh, the first of the Mission Impossible films. So. Oh, was the first Mission Impossible before this? Yeah, so, so he's not hurting for a few dollars. I, I mean, I would go so far as to say his is the performance of the film. It's just, uh, I think so, yeah. 
and uh, I'm not sure we might have thought we were going to say that coming into a Tom Cruise one. I, I do feel he perhaps his reputation and his ego get in the way a little bit of the fact that he genuinely is a very good actor. Um, yeah, I, I'm not generally a fan of his acting style, but I, I, I regard that as me or a, 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 some sort of hiccup in the gestalt of me and him, his performance, yeah. my watching it, rather <laughs> yes. than he is he is doing it badly, because many other people don't feel the same way, so fair enough. Yeah, yeah, uh, fair point. I, I'm a bit, yeah, I'm a bit that way. Perhaps I'm less put up, um, because of performances like this, but I, I agree. It, he, he's a hard character to reconcile in some ways. But a great performance, great character. Um, uh, Melora Walters as um, Jimmy Gates' daughter. Was, oh, I've forgotten her name. Carol. Didn't write it. Carol. Um, yeah, she was apparently the, the character who, who, was, who they thought of first, or Anderson thought of first. Um, uh, and then other things just sort of grew up around it. It was originally supposed to be a small, intimate kind of film. <laughs> uh, it's weird because it's like a big intimate kind of mm, film um, yeah. uh, or an epic they're epic but it never kind of broadens its scope it's just a lot of different people having a lot of different things happen to them um, and with uh, with Carol uh, she's clearly a broken not quite adult um, who has been abused by her father now this is what I was talking about you know when we talked about um, Mary Riley and I was like if you're going to talk about child abuse you need to do it sensitively and properly. Mm. And I feel here it is handled with weight and with sensitivity. It's not explicit. No one can quite bring themselves to say what's happened. Even if the guy can't actually remember, and I think he genuinely can't actually remember whether he did it. Well, that's it. Again, but it's open to interpretation. Is that... Can he not remember? Or can he... Is he not allowing himself to remember? Is he just Mm. saying that because he can't say... But I I like that... uh, I feel like it was handled well here hmm. in a way that it it was used as a plot point in Mary Riley. Uh, yeah, it's not just saying she's like this because, which which I think yeah. was what Mary Riley did. Yes, exactly. It was just saying this is in her past. I mean, there may be many of other things in her past that have led her this way. She may have always ended up as this person. But I think hers is a great performance. Um, and... I, uh, we can talk about the plot and the, the uh, such that it is and where it leads us, but I do feel, much as I was ultimately frustrated by the film, it ends with her smile, and I that smile is so perfect for that character, and it it gives you hope, hmm. even though after a moment's reflection, <laughs> probably shouldn't have a great deal of hope in this situation. Yeah. Uh, that I was happy, it gave me a happy ending, and. Uh, not that kind of happy ending. Um, uh, but, but, but not, you know, a complete, you know, everybody's going to be happy forever after. No, it was just that here is a tiny chink of hope in this situation. I mean, the film is not a morass of misery, or not to me at least, but it is a lot of bad things happen. Mm, the thing, um, um, okay, the, the, I think the term is comedy of embarrassment. You know, the, the, the style of humour that basically says, here is somebody who, who doesn't get it, who does a silly thing, and that yes. is funny. And yes. I think bec- partly because I can always too easily see myself as that person. Uh, right, yeah. I, I don't get on with it very well. And th- the feeling I got from particularly the first half of this was it, w- it was like a sitcom, only without the laugh track. You know, here is yes. the embarrassing situation. Here is the guy who shouts himself out of a job. Uh, here, here is the kid who pees himself on, on, on camera and whatever. Uh, but nobody's laughing. But nobody's laughing and, and, and the camera doesn't cut away and, and here we are all being sad. <laughs> Maybe, um, that is, 
maybe comedy uh, is just a cut away from tragedy. You know, <laughs> if you don't get away, that's what turns it into tragedy. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, so I found the first half of this quite hard going. Okay, and then then once I'd got got into the um, into the rhythm of it, I suppose, and and once I. I didn't feel a lot of sympathy for the characters, but I felt at least a bit on the basis that I don't really want anybody much to suffer. So yes, yeah, and they do feel like humans, uh, if nothing else. And so, so that's why I say, yeah, a, a year ago I, I would not have been able to make that transition. So yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm appreciating more thank, thanks to this podcast. Well, there we go. <laughs> We've done this. I mean, it means you can sit through Magnolia. So that's, that's <laughs> Well, I think hers, uh, so again, going through the character, we have, um, is it Philip Baker Hall as Jimmy Gator, this kind of quiz show host. Again, it was an amazing performance. I really like his, uh, like he goes on tanked up. You can tell he's regularly done this before. You can't tell, uh, when he's on screen. He's just a consummate professional. Hmm. Also, an awful human being, as we find out, also dying of cancer and another mirror. It's, uh, again, it's a great performance. Uh, um, well, well, I don't think it's a it's a major consideration. I can't help noticing that in in an awful lot of films then and now, everybody who's dying of cancer is a saint. So it's kind of uh, yes. kind of nice to have people who aren't. Oh, well, yeah. In this case, both the characters who are dying of cancer are, are not um, are far from saints. And that one of the other performances that was absolutely stellar to me was uh, Jason Robards as the dying big Earl Partridge. Hmm. Um, I, I believe, in fact, his final film role. Before he died of cancer, yeah. Um, uh, Though, yeah, is, a few um, years later, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think he had it at the time. I liked, uh, I did like this plot point because end of life and realistic end of life is just not often portrayed. Uh, certainly not in film. I, I suppose there are TV dramas about it and plays about it, but a realistic. This is what happens when a body just is so broken that it stops working. Mm. This is the sort of thing you have to do. And a lot of it is painful waiting and just wishing they would die and wishing their pain away. And just and just quite, quite possibly the person involved is feeling that way too, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. No one's enjoying it. It's just everyone wants it over with. And when it is over with, it's just all... Now, I suppose my perspective here is from... Um, uh, working general practice as a vet and, and, you know, dealing with euthanasia. Um, mm. and so I, I suppose it's, I wouldn't say it's a comfortable situation for me, but it's a, a an area I have personally mentally explored quite a lot. Yeah. Um, you, you've thought about it before you came into it in this film. Yes, exactly. Whereas I, I get the feeling a lot of people just don't want to think about this stuff. And so I, I was very pleased to see what seemed to me to be, uh, a realistic depiction of um, effectively euthanasia. I mean, they they are effectively overdosing him with morphine to end his suffering. Um, it was, I and I found his performance, um, his discussion of regret, that little monologue where he's half lucid um, and talking to um, Phil. Hmm. I, I found it incredibly affecting. I mean, I was in, in tears. I know I get in tears very easily anyway, but just his, his talking about regret and how he'd thrown his life away and how there wasn't any redemption at the end of his life. Again, though, the film gives a slight chink of hope in that we have... Not, not much. It doesn't give a lot here, but we have well, a drink he, by yeah, the bedside. He is clearly conscious for at least a bit of that. So Yeah, and he, he is at least aware that Frank comes to visit him and Frank... He goes there full of hate, 
finds it in his heart to feel something for his dad. Um, I, those moments, I think, for me, ultimately made the film worth watching. Um, hmm. uh, plus, I was enjoying the film as it went along. Um, I don't, have I missed anyone out of this ensemble? We have Melinda Dillon as um, uh, Rose Gator, who's Jimmy's wife. Uh, again, a lovely performance. Um, fairly um, small part, but yeah. Fairly small part. We're into the small parts now. But uh, Oh, Alfred Molina pops up. Um, oh, we haven't talked about uh, Stanley, the child actor, Jeremy Blackman. Um, how did you find him? He didn't really didn't work, work for me at all. No. Whereas Dixon, the rapping kid, oh, uh, yeah, play, yeah. played by Emmanuel Johnson, um, was much better for me. I mean, that that did work. I, I agree. Stanley felt a bit. I, I mean, there are some people who have he he looks like, like a child or... star. I mean, he's meant to look like a child star. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, if it, and I think it was partly his character is supposed to have this slightly awkwardness, and it. But the what it comes across as is he's just not perhaps as good an actor as all the others around him. And I think that's a bit unfair on him because I think he's supposed to be that sort of character. But it does feel a bit like. Oh, he's he's a bit stilted compared to the other. He just doesn't seem as comfortable in his role. Um, and for that matter, for, for for all the non-ending endings we get, I think his is the least convincing of any positive outcome at all. So this is the one where he goes into his dad and says, "You need to be nicer to me," um, and he just tells him to go back to bed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the way the hope is taken away. Um, his dad's performance again. Uh, uh, well, again, there is a theme. If there are themes in this, it's parent issues, which often, I mean, often American uh, films. <laughs> well, the, the, this is where I think that initial coincidence stuff uh, comes back, because what, what, what Ebert said about this, uh, what, what he thought that initial coincidence stuff was about, was be careful what you do, because the consequences could be wider spread than you expect. Right, I see. And, and I think sure. there's a certain amount of that. There is. I'm not sure the film quite lives up to it or underlies it as well as it could but uh, it also seems to be a film about as you say duality or at least pairing and repeating cycles in that you know we can see the same thing that happened to donnie happening happening to stanley sure um uh we can see what happened uh what happened to carol to some extent also happening to to stanley as well and um you know, we we know we're going to have a similar situation for jimmy that we've got with uh big old partridge um yeah, so it's uh, there are so it's more in a way the film feels more like um, uh, jazz. Does that make sense? It's more freehand music rather mm. than uh, a specific plot. I cannot bear jazz. <laughs> I, I have to say, well, there, there's jazz and jazz. I, I'm going to make a small case for it here. Okay. There, there, there is jazz I like and there is jazz I don't, and okay. I'm, I'm going to frame it in those terms because I'm not going to say good or bad. I yeah. feel that, that that it works best as the music people get up and dance to. Yes. Okay. And yes. I I think it was a great error when somebody told uh Duke Ellington, you know, man, you're a serious musician. You should you could you can make serious music, and and he does you know a a um, three hour improvisation. Yeah. And that that does not work for me because you know every little bit of it is fine, but there's there is no structure to it because it, it's just in these you know thirty second two minute segments. And nothing which connects is, them, and which which is its natural form for me. Yes, uh, but that is um, very much you could describe that with Magnolia too. You know, it, it is this three-hour-long, disparate, lovely notes to listen to or to watch, 
but it doesn't uh, it's very loosely connected so i suppose you could call it sort of tactical versus strategic the the individual yes. shots the individual scenes work very well but if so, if somebody said hang on this was actually three different directors and they didn't talk to each other you might find it plausible <laughs> you might do. It. it is quite stylistic. I, I do. Yes, I agree with you. There, there is jazz, and the actual music of jazz I like. What I don't like is is sort of listening to an interminable improvisation, um, because it doesn't seem to have a point. Now, why? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, in in a live setting. Yeah. Where the the band is is playing, you know, the standards and some other stuff, and and then they can read the audience and say, okay, this is the audience that will, that would be happy with a bit here, so I'll do a bit here. That flows out of who we are tonight. It, it's yes. very much a live thing, not not a yeah. You, know, you listen to it on a CD, obviously, it's going to fail. Oh yeah, I fully um, accept that. Probably, I would like jazz a whole lot more if I, you know, if I saw it live. Show, like show my age here, CDs. I mean, who uses <laughs> CDs anymore? I don't. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a stack of them here. I should get rid of them. Really. Um, oh, that, those those are your physical licenses for, you, for the music you own. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh jeez, what a world we've created. Um, yeah, well, I think that was a good defence of jazz and also a good sort of description of Magnolia. And I think your strategic versus tactical is really opposite here because ultimately at the end of Magna I, I loved um, I loved the scenes and I really enjoyed the count. I found it very watchable it, well, uh, It's interesting because even though it's they're basically slice of life stories they, they do come to a stopping point they don't just cut off in the middle of things it's not no, the end of the story but it, it would at least be a chapter break for each of them exactly, Yeah there's at least some uh, if not quite resolution then there's a ton of loose ends that aren't tied up but you could I think again you've hit the nail on the head I think we get a small chapter of their lives it's not the beginning it's not the end um, we get some idea of where it's going to go and we get lots of little ones which reminded me very much of the structure of um, Cloud Atlas the uh, David Mitchell sort of science fiction book where hmm. it's, each one is a, a book within a book and you get the first half of each book um, uh, and so you're enjoying each book as they come along uh, each separate story and then the second half of the book is kind of the conclusion of all these stories um, and much as with Magnolia I was really enjoying the writing I was really enjoying the film uh, but in my mind because I knew we were going to finish all these stories off and I'm talking about both things now really um, I built up in my head a, an expectation of resolution and narrative uh, that just fizzles out in both Cloud Atlas and Magnolia they just they don't come to a satisfying narrative and the so it's not frustrating to me but I suppose ultimately what it leaves me feeling is I really enjoyed this but it never added up to more than the sum of its parts all it was was just these moments uh, which I enjoyed all of them but for some reason I don't know why narrative is important and I don't know why resolution is important but it does leave me a little underwhelmed I, I, I certainly need to ask more of a film if it doesn't give me that narrative yes yeah and, and does so do you think Magnolia gives you enough more beyond the, the little moments and the characters Yes, I mean, I'm not going to rush to watch it again, but I, but I did overall enjoy it. So you know, yeah, I, I do think that worked. Um, the a, a production note, um, which surprised me slightly, but then, then it sort of made sense. Um, Anderson did show network to the production team before they started filming. You mentioned this to me off air, which is interesting, and. 
And he also he had worked as a production assistant on a kids quiz show. Okay, so my assumption there is that the network was really for the to give an idea of how the TV network works. I would assume, but you know, when we were watching, um, particularly Linda, I was getting a certain amount of yeah, that style. Yeah, is, is this just that uh, she, she acts in that way, or is it yeah, is, is is she trying to imitate Faye Dunaway? Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Because I mean, the there, there's a certain amount of that, of that, which I I can't pin it down, but it just sort of felt that style was was her style. Yeah, her character's somewhat different. She's much less sort of confident and much less uh, aware or comfortable with herself. I think Linda, um, mm. where, uh, Faye Dunaway's character is incredibly confident and self-assured. Sure. I see a few cracks in Network. Um, uh, yeah, I, that's interesting. That I, I think it probably did ripple over into to other things, and yes, perhaps there was an echo of of that there. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to point out, well, I sort of did appreciate um, in uh, uh, that there's kind of a whole weird either serial killer or murder film just in the background here, just completely tossed away. We have John C. Riley's cop finds the corpse, uh, and that's it. That he's just sidelined from then, and we never ah, find anything more about him. Right? Have you seen the de- the, the deleted scene? No. What's the deleted scene? Okay, so I'm I'm not. Apparently, though, it's not clear quite why it was deleted. Apparently, he was having trouble making it work, rather than deleted to time or anything. Okay. Um, but the the lost gun gets into the hand of Dixon, the rapping kid. Okay. Uh, whose father is Worm Orlando Jones, who never, who I think, I think you can see the back of his head in one scene, but his part was basically cut. Okay. Who, who is talking in a diner with Stanley, the new quiz kid, and there is an argument and so on. And eventually, the gun gets thrown out of their car, and that's when it gets back to Jimmy. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, we just see it randomly fall down with the rain of frogs in the film. Um. That was the original plan, and and Worm indeed is the guy who shot the dead guy, uh, which, which is what Dixon was saying in his rap. He does say that, and it just nothing ever happens to it. I, I sort of, do you know what? I, I almost prefer it just being a random thing that never happened. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it seems to work. It, it seems to work well that way round. Um, should we talk about the the reign of frogs? What did that do? Um, did that? take you out of it? Were you like, this is nonsense what's going on? Or did it fit? No, I think by that point I was sufficiently in the right frame of mind to say, well, yeah why not? Yeah, I, I think I I think the Reign of Frogs is what precipitated people to walk out at some point. Um, not the musical uh, number then. Well, I was going to talk about that well. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the Reign of Frogs, yes, I feel like it, it hadn't quite been uh, foreshadowed, but I, I felt the feel of the film was like, yeah, okay, well, this, and all, for me, whenever any surreal stuff happens, so long as the characters react in a way that I would, I don't mind it so much. Hmm. If they just took it on board, like, oh yeah, it's raining frogs, that's fine. But they're all like, what the hell? What the frog? Oh my god, there's an actual physical problem with these frogs causing me difficulty. I don't understand what's happening. Then it worked fine for me. I don't mind it. Yeah, uh, in in production terms, they are a mix of rubber and CGI frogs, apparently. Uh, yes, I was hoping they weren't actual frogs. Oh, I mean, indeed. There must be some live frogs, because um, some of them move. But, uh, um, but uh, the, the thing that really struck me, and this is a thing that 
you, you miss when you, when you start noticing it. Um, they, they have mass. You know, they're, they're not, yes. it's not just a rain in the background that you could, you could do purely with visual effects. They are actually hitting the windscreens and cracking them and stuff. I think that's what I liked, really. That, uh, that's what I was trying to allude to. Right? There are actual physical consequences to these things raining mm. down. It's not just like a weird thing. It's like, this thing is going to break your nose. Uh, it's going to knock a gun out of your hand if it lands on you. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, which I liked, yeah. So I, I had no problem with the rain of frogs at all. Yeah. The musical number. How did you feel about that, Roger? Mm, I, I had heard that there was a musical number, and I, conf- I admit I was expecting something more like a musical, in which people suddenly <laughs> burst into song. As it is, I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it's a song on the soundtrack. That everyone sings along to. In the yeah, world. which is not quite the same thing for me. Yeah, I did, it was... It, for some weird reason, it worked for me. On paper, that wouldn't at all. I'd be like, "What's happening? I don't understand." For some weird reason, I was I was happy enough with the film that I just went with it. And I mm. do happen to quite like the song and the music style um, to the point where I have bought the song uh, "Wise Up" because I did and bought some of Amy Mann's music. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know that it needed it. But I I don't I don't mind. It's like that little bit in Pulp Fiction where. Um, uh, where Mia Wallace says, don't be a square, Vincent, and draws a square with her fingers, and it actually draws a square on the screen. And it's just a bit random and <laughs> something a film can do. Uh, I don't mind it too much. It didn't interfere with the plot. Um, and I, I, on the whole, I liked it, but largely because I like the music. Maybe I would have hated it if I didn't. Yeah, and the, the only thing that irked me a bit around there was, you know, here is Linda's suicide scene effectively being narrated by Frank. And yeah, come on, give her her own voice. Yeah, that's <laughs> I think it was a bit unfair that she, um, she didn't get a, a, I mean, she, there was hope in the ending and, you know, Frank went to see her at the end. But I, I feel like, yeah, her, she was sort of disempowered by the end. I mean, she has done a suicide attempt, um, which is a form of empowerment in its way. I was a bit uncomfortable. I mean, these are all, all the main cast are white, and we have a few mm-hmm. um, female characters. Every black person in this film is either a murderer or a thief, um, or uh, an accomplice to murder. I found that a bit uncomfortable. I must say, if you've got a big ensemble cast like that, I don't know. Maybe this is looking at it with twenty twenty vision. I, I think um, that's a thing that filmmakers have been forcibly brought to notice when, when before they could get away with not noticing. Yes, I, I think maybe it's just more apparent to us now. Thankfully, that we live in more... Uh, I mean, we're still in a dystopian future, but at least we're diverse about it. Um, and it, it really... I think the thing that really struck me is, you know, when the... What's the name of the, the rapper, kid? Um, he's not actually named on screen, but he's Dixon. Dixon. He has to look through her wallet and, and take her money. And it just... Uh, I mean, I suppose it's realistic, but... No other. I, I suppose the white people are all involved in casual cruelty too. But I, you know, yeah, but he's the one we see doing it. Yeah, exactly. I just, I yeah, I, it seemed unnecessary to me. It's like the thing. I mean, I've, I've noticed this from a feminist perspective. Um, quite often, there is only one woman in a primary cast of a film, and so when when you're saying, you know, she, she is be, being greedy or vain or self obsessed or whatever. You are effectively saying women are like this because you don't have any other women as contrast, even if that wasn't necessarily your intention. Yes, I think that's a problem. In context, it all. And since he, since he is, you know, him and the the woman in whose body, in whose closet the body is found are pretty much the only black people with lines, I think. 
Yes, uh, you know, hers is hysterical and unreasonable and obstructive, and he is, uh, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a thief. And I just, um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. They're, they're the only black presence in there, and they are negative hmm. uh, stereotypes for the most part, and I, I found that a bit uncomfortable. There was no only, we have all these characters, and not one of them is a, a non-white person. Hmm. Which seemed to shame. Maybe I think that is just much more obvious now, and it, in a way, it's a reflection of how things have moved on from then, which is nice. Yeah. Now, a thing people commented on at the time um, was the, um, yeah, the the TV's droning on in the background. Right. Yes. Which I must admit, I I didn't notice because I was just take the, the film itself is already a long way away from the sort of interactions I know. And therefore, I was take, taking it as a whole, and yeah, the, the, yeah, these are people who do that. These are also people who hate each other, and I try not to hang around people like that either. So, <laughs> yes, yes, fair enough. Um, but but I think if one were more used to the thing, it, it might. Uh, and also, you you could argue, I think that that the um, cutting from scene to scene is kind of channel surfy. It is a bit, yeah. I, again, we dwell on each scene, and they're nicely constructed. But yes, it's like, oh, watch this for a bit. I'm I'm bored. Switch to another bit. Um, okay, well, I, I I hadn't particularly noticed the TV's droning on, but I now you mention it. Yes. Well, particularly because I I so much enjoyed the um, pickup parody that when I when I, when that was going on in the background, I noticed it. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yes, fair enough. Um, I think my uh, I saw a quote from the Independent about Magnolia, which kind of sums up a lot for me. Is that Magnolia does not make the last word of anything, but is superb. And I think um, superb might be a bit strong for me, but I I enjoyed the journey. Um, I don't know why there's a part of a human that needs a bit more as a destination. I I felt uh, it never quite added up really to more than that, but I appreciated the things it had to say, and I particularly appreciated seeing End of Life depicted realistically on screen, mm. and I appreciated all the performances for the most part, particularly Tom Cruise's. I mean, he's very charismatic. He's certainly a, a charismatic actor. Um, yeah. So I like, but, but, I would... but he, he can turn that up to 12 and <laughs> that's in character and that that's ideal. Yeah, and then dial it down or turn it up in a different way for mm. that improvisation scene at the end. Yeah. Uh, I, I was blown away by his acting in this, I must say. Um, and he was... I think he did, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this, possibly. I don't think he won it, though. Um, OK, any more you want to say about Magnolia? Is this a masterpiece? That's a tricky one. It, it, uh, it's sitting right on the edge of it for me, and I could yeah. be convinced either way. It, I think I feel the same, yeah. It's not a film I would recommend to an awful lot of people, possibly yeah. including me. Uh <laughs> It's not, I think, a film that's been widely imitated. No. But it's got something. And it's, it's got definitely... something really right, in spite of all the things I didn't like. So... Well, with our retrospective episode, we talked about films that are easy to watch. Um, this, for me, was a surprisingly easy watch. Sounds like it was, it was a bit harder for you, at least the first half. Yeah. Um... And, and as we've said, you know, if, if you have the option of, I'm just going to pause now and come back a bit later. Yes. Um, there are some films that caused me to want to do that and this was definitely one of them I was interested, we'll have to talk about that with our next episode which very much, uh, basically I took a break in our next film and I came back to it and found 
my attitude to it almost 100% reversed which is <laughs> um, but um, it may change again the next time I watch it because I haven't finished it yet um, uh, yes I uh, I've lost my train of thought now <laughs> that's what I was going to say um, is it a masterpiece for me I think almost maybe yes um, there's a lot I love about it. Uh, I found it. I will certainly watch more Paul Thomas Anderson films because I think he has got interesting things to say, um, and I'd like to to try some more of them. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, something I do quite a bit is you know read popular literature of the 1910s, 1920s, and the best way to do that I have found is is to shift one's mindset to get into the right mood for it first. Yes, because if you are constantly complaining about the, the bad stuff you just there's just nothing to be no enjoyment to be had at all whereas yes. if, you, if you know you, you get that out of the way in advance and say yes this is this is extremely racist even by the standards of the day but but having taking that as read now i'll see if i can find anything to like about yeah it. you know i'm I, i'm not i'm not saying that if that's a show that's a uh, problem for you you should ignore it i'm saying that if it isn't then there is still potentially fun to be had Yes, exactly. You can't, yes, it's a question of understanding the sins and forgiving them a bit so you can enjoy the rest of it. Um, uh, yeah, well, uh, almost. I think we're both on the fence, really, about Magnolia. I yeah. Think there seems to be something well, more Well, two, two half-mossed pieces makes one whole one, right? Well, there we go, yeah. I think it will <laughs> stay with me, and I think the imagery and the characters probably will stay with me for longer than some of them all. So, oh, that was my train of thought, really, because the other thing we were talking about in our retrospective episode was how forgettable is a film or how memorable. I think this is a memorable, almost masterpiece. Mm. Um, I, don't, I suppose, though, I'm asking myself, what would I have wanted to make it more of a masterpiece? Maybe more resolution and maybe a slightly shorter film. But I don't which, know. which would it, probably mean chopping away some fraction of the characters. Yeah, and I don't know if it would be the same film then. So I, I don't know if I could... I mean, I'm not a filmmaker, but I, I don't know what I would want to fix to make it a masterpiece for me. Um, but it all it's almost there. I can see why some people absolutely adore it and think it's amazing. I can see why some people just bounced off it. Um, I think we're both somewhere in the middle. Yeah, also, I mean, it's not a casual watch, which a lot of films are, and indeed a lot of films I enjoy are. Yes. Um, this is not not a thing to have on in the background, even if you're the sort of person who does that. Yes. It feels like it's got something to say about humanity. Um, maybe. But although, in its own way, it's just as artificial as any other science fiction film or superhero film. But, <laughs> but then all films are. All right. Almost there. Uh, we'll, we'll, well, I will certainly watch some more Paul Thomas Anderson. Whether we hmm. revisit him in Ribbon of Memes, I don't know. We'll see. And, yeah, this, this is 1999 in film. And, yes. hmm. and what were the Oscars? Okay, so, so the majors at least are going, yeah, you know, including, you know, actor and supporting actor and so on. Yeah. Uh, American Beauty, I think, gets two or three. That doesn't feel like a film that's aged well. Have you seen it? I have not, uh, even before the um, whole... Spacey affair. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know how I'd feel about it now. It's hard to say. I'm sad to say it's hard to separate Kevin Spacey from his work a bit now. Um, Yeah. But I don't... I don't know if I'd feel that fondly about it now. It feels I, like one of those that everyone raved about, and it just wasn't. I, I certainly w- wasn't particularly excited by it at the time. Um, Boys Don't Cry? Don't remember that at all. <laughs> uh, neither do I, and I, I looked it up last night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've no memory of it whatsoever. 
I'm pretty sure I haven't seen it. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically, a uh, trans man attempts to find himself and love in Nebraska. And wow, okay. doesn't. Yeah, sounds like a heavy watch. Uh, all right, well, I will pass no comment on it because I know nothing about it. Uh, see, Cider House Rules. Orphans! I never saw it, yeah, I remember everyone raving about it. Well, I remember critics raving about it. I don't remember anyone else talking about it in my social circle. <laughs> I suppose that's, that's a fair way of putting it. And uh, Girl Interrupted. Oh, I'd like to see that. Mm. Um, is that, uh, it's, uh, 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 our Heather's, um. Winona Ryder. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that, uh, only because I always like to see Winona Ryder. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this is before she started having the, the serious mental problems herself, I believe. Yes, so, which, which, which would make one a bit uncomfortable, but, uh, as I understand it, I've heard good things about it. It's, it's one I would definitely consider watching for fun. Be interesting to see. I don't know how mental health issues. I mean, again, attitudes to mental health issues have changed, much like diversity, dramatically in twenty. Or I always feel like they have because of the social circles I move in. I'm not sure how much they have in the wider. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see how that was dealt with um, twenty years ago. We're, we're to twenty. I feel like everything was thirty years ago. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, so, so that's the Oscar winners in terms of nominations. Uh, I've also got The Insider. Uh, vaguely, is that a John Grishamy type? Uh... No, it's, uh, my, my links have gone away because I'm on a different computer. Oh, is it the one about the cigarette industry? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that's supposed to be very good, actually. Never seen it. And, uh, you, you have permanently destroyed the, the integrity of reputation of 60 Minutes and all that sort of thing. Oh yeah, it was uh, Russell Crowe I believe. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that. No, never watched it. Yeah, I presume you know Russell Crowe. Uh, let's see. The Sixth Sense. Okay, now I I have a a, a thing about The Sixth Sense. <laughs> Many people do, but yes, let's see. Well, I first saw it actually um, on a network operation shift in the middle of the night. Oh blimey. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I had this basic problem that the moment the the um, things started getting weird, I worked out immediately what it was likely to be. Right, yes. And therefore, you know, what was supposed to be getting creepier and creepier was just confirming the theory I already had. I think that's the problem in that with the tw- uh, uh, hands in the air, the twist completely got me. The film absolutely hoodwinked me and worked perfectly mm. for me. But I have tried to watch it again, and frankly, if you know the twist, the film doesn't really make any sense at all. It's just such clearly a work of artifice to get you to that place where you're like, "Oh my god!" So I can see if you knew that's what was going to happen anyway, then the film is not. Great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it would be fair to say, uh, even of people who liked it the first time, it probably doesn't stand up well to rewatching in general. Yes, whereas I think uh, his other film, um, Unbreakable, uh, I really do like the uh, Bruce Willis superhero film, uh, which is like a realistic superhero. That said, M. Night Shyamalan has done some pretty awful films since, including The Happening, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, that is one of the best worst, but we should watch that on Ribbon of Me. So it's just, <laughs> there's only so many crash zooms you can do against an immobile plant, which is a villain. <laughs> <in this world. laughs> 
before it becomes a bit comedic. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but it, oh my god, it is. I love it. Yeah, well, be- because of this, I, n- I never really got enthused by his other stuff, and I might well give Unbreakable a go at some point. Uh, and I'm just thinking that there are films where that that have a twist, but do stand up to rewatching. Yes. So, uh, Citizen Kane for me would be the classic example. Um, but so, many yeah. Okay, so what what else got nominated? Uh, the Tans of Mr. Ripley. Oh, I like that film. The, the, yes. the third making of it. That's um, uh, Matt Damon. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Fairly early role. Like Venice, maybe. Uh, I I do like it. I, I have fond memories of it. I can't remember much about it other than it's it's good. Uh, the Green Mile. I like that film too. I'm sorry what, one to of the, one of the films that codified the magical Negro trope. Yeah, I mean, I I'm aware it has a lot of problems, um, and I can see why a lot of people hate it. And it's got Tom Hanks in it. I can see why a lot of people love it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask you to watch it. <laughs> Uh, see the, um, oh yeah, The Matrix, of course. Uh, which, which we will be talking about, but not yet. We've not forgotten it. At, at least one of the sequels we feel was not rubbish. Or at least worth talking about. Oh, we've been told. Anyway. <laughs> we don't know for sure. Uh, uh top, yeah. Topsy Turvy, a musical by Mike Lee. Uh, basically about oh, Gilbert I... and Sullivan writing the Mikado. Oh, I'd be interested to try. I've, I've never, we haven't talked about Mike Lee here. I, I do, I do, um, I have watched a few of Mike Lee, and I find him less kind of depressing and kitchen sinky and a bit warmer than I was expecting. I, d- I think he's a good director. Maybe we should try him at some point. But uh, it's not the sort of film we tend to gravitate to here, um, mm. Mike, Mike Lee's films. But uh, Secrets and Lies and things, I'd, I'd like to give some of those a try. At some point. Yeah, I don't think I've seen any of his. Uh, being John Malkovich. Oh, I love being John Malkovich. But it's got John Cusack in, and it's got... I, I know Malkovich is, uh, uh, has um, perpetrated one of the worst performances <laughs> that I thought of, but he's very good in being John Malkovich. Um, I, I do. I'm afraid. I went through a phase of really like. Is it Spike Jones? Um, I do like his work. I think it's Spike Jones, the director. Um, uh, though I ha- it has the stickers worn on me a little bit in the end, but mm-hmm. I, I find it funny. And quirky. Well, this, this, is, this is his first feature film. It's also uh, Charlie Kaufman's first script for a feature film. I like film. Charlie Kaufman's script as well, but similarly, um, uh, their quirkiness has become a bit self-conscious and frustrating to me lately, but I like them generally, and I certainly like that film. Uh, and the, lo- the last one on my, on my uh, multiple nominations list was uh, Sleepy Hollow, which... Oh, Tim Burton? I haven't seen it. I just didn't didn't muster up any interest for it. Yeah, and that that was more or less, I, I think, the feeling that was around me was, oh yeah, they've made this film about this story we don't particularly care about, it hasn't got anybody terribly interesting in it. I mean, yes, it's Tim Burton, so we'll probably see it eventually, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah it just felt like a very Tim Burton-y thing to do, and I felt like, I, yeah, I don't know why, just didn't... Like, yeah, same, same as you, that's how I felt. Uh, as for the box office... Yeah. So, uh, number 10, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, the... That one I have actually seen. I haven't seen the first one. Uh, oh, that is a shame because the first one is tons better than the second one. <laughs> I, I strongly recommend you watch the first one. Fair uh, enough. And don't don't worry too much about the second one. <laughs> I certainly wasn't terribly impressed by it. No, uh, it's not very good. Number nine, American Beauty, which we mentioned we already. About, yeah. uh, number eight, The World Is Not Enough. Yet another James Bond. 
I, I lose track of when they actually stopped for a bit, but you know. I, can't I may have said this was the worst. Uh, uh, maybe the last time you said it, I said that was the worst change one, but maybe this is the worst. And uh, maybe this is what I'm the one. I don't know. Die another day is pretty bad. There are, that was uh, the one with the invisible car, I think. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Uh, Casino Royale is coming up, which is, I think, a genuinely good film, but none of the others. But, but they've got to work out the old, the old stuff first and. and... Hope, give us hope that the series will finally be shot in the head, but no, no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it'll be back again. Oh dear. Uh, number seven then, uh, Notting Hill, romantic comedy. Uh, is Hugh Grant in this one? I think so. Uh, yes, Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts. Um, it's, it's, um, a, it, it was the time when I started to realise, um, Richard, uh, Curtis's stuff was getting a bit saccharine and frustrating for me. It's it's a rerun of Four Weddings for the large for a large part. It's it's funny and pleasant and nice, uh, uh, but I I was just starting to get a bit bored of that shtick. Hmm. Uh, see, number six, uh, the Mummy, which ooh, the Brendan Fraser one. Yeah. Uh, okay. I actually have a certain amount of time for this. I mean, the the, se- do, the sequels yeah. fell apart, but yes. You know, I mean, yes, on the one hand, we are doing the uh, same old plot, and I, I'm very fond of the original film. Yes. Well, this is on the other hand, this time we're... Adventure than horror. Yeah, but we're also going to give the female character something to do. Yes. I mean, who, who'd have thought? I know, yeah, she's a... Oh, I've forgotten her name. Uh, Rachel Weisz. She's, she's an amazing actress. Yes, Rachel Weisz. Brendan Fraser's an amazing... It's the one of the very few films possibly along with Romancing the Stone, that has done Indiana Jones uh, mimicry and done it well enough to be almost as enjoyable, I think. Yeah. I, I really, I've got a lot of time for the moment, yes. I'll just put in a little dig here at the, at the recent one with uh, Tom Cruise, which, I mean, I, there's bad film I enjoy, and then that was just so lifeless. Uh, <laughs> ironically. Um but yeah, anyway. I haven't seen it. I, no, I'm afraid no interest in seeing it. But yeah, I like you. I've got a lot of time for the mummy. I I don't know if it's underrated. I I think it was really liked. I, I think it was generally dis- off any interest. Well, you know, in in a film with, in a year with Magnolia coming out in it, it's very easy to say. Well, you know, th- this is a popcorn crab pleaser film. This is yeah. not trying to be taken seriously because that's what cro- popcorn crab pleaser films now do. But I th- I think it's got more to it than just you know brightly moving objects and loud noises. Well, it's got characters that you root for and you're interested yeah. in and you care about. And it's a good plot. Yeah, I have a huge amount of time for it. I tried to show it to my son and forgot how. Basically, it starts with uh, the, the mummy getting entombed. Uh, and I, he was absolutely terrified and I had to turn it off. But uh, I, I should have thought about that a bit, a bit harder. Never mind. Well, now, now you have a good way of making him go to bed. Uh, <laughs> terror as a child-raising technique. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and Toki, which uh, number five Tarzan? Did anybody see this? Well, evidently they did. It's number five at the box office. Uh, I, I, I was, I had not heard of this film. Is this the Disney animated feature? Uh, I think so. I again, my kids. We got Disney Plus. They will watch anything Disney. They've never watched Tarzan. I can't even remember ever seeing it on there. Maybe it's not even on Disney Plus. But um, <laughs> is it? Is it Disney film? I think it, it is. is. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, yeah, yeah, weird. It just seems to have sank without a trace. Uh, unlike you know, it, it's got Mini Driver and Lance, Hen- Lance Henriksen and Brian Blessed providing voices. Bloody hell! Okay, well, it may well be good. <laughs> it just seems to have 
disappeared for some reason. But well, they made some money for yeah. Disney. So, I, as uh, some someone without children, I, I do tend to ro- roll all the later Disney films together as you know, a businessman decided that this was a marketable thing, and then they got some people <laughs> in to, to, to write a script. But yeah, no, nobody really had much in the way of creative uh, input because there wasn't any creative input to be had. So. <laughs> I think they're getting better, like Encanto and, and um, uh, uh, Moana, genuinely a very good film, I think. I, I don't know about yeah. Encanto, actually. Yeah, I, I, I had my issues with Moana, but yeah, a lot of it was very good. Is it? Well, it's got the rock in it, so being the rock. Um, the, the, this is considered, uh, apparently, the, the last film of the Disney Renaissance. Right, yeah. I think they tried to go back with another animated one, The Princess and the Frog, which yeah, I, I like well enough, but basically... They've moved on to Pixar-style animated uh, mm. extravaganzas now. Uh, so, number four, The Matrix, which we'll talk uh, about later. More later. Uh, number three, Toy Story 2, which we will talk about later. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> we just have we we haven't quite decided where, where the masterpieces end with Toy Story, but um, we'll, we'll we'll come on to that. I, I haven't actually seen the fourth one, so uh, I. I think we should go to the fourth one. <laughs> okay. Uh, number two, the sixth sense we already mentioned. So, you know, there, there is some overlap between Oscar nomination yeah, and... Uh, I must say, again, like, there was a period in the in the early 90s where I just felt like I wanted to die when we were talking about what films... All these films, I'm not horrified by the majority of them. They're all interesting and they're all different. They Very few sequels here apart from... Uh, number 10. Uh, so, The Austin it. Powers, The World Is Not Enough, Toy Story 2... Oh, yeah. are, are all sequels, and we've I got don't really we've count got Toy Story Two as a sequel because it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but also um, we've got the Mummy and the Matrix and the last one, which will will which will give rise to sequels. So so okay. it's it's six out of ten overall, uh, and the the last one being the great disappointment, Star Wars Episode One. Oh, which I need can't. need not have been a disappointment, but it was so heavily marketed. It was. I was yeah, so any, hyped up for it. Any it actual weird. frames on the screen would have been a disappointment at that point. I was so hyped up for it. I took so many people along to see it, and everyone was like, you're that Star Wars fan, you're going to really enjoy this. And I was so excited for it. The hype actually carried me through, like the first half of the film, to, to the point where I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, there's, there's lightsabers. It was only, it, it lasted till towards the end of the film. I just thought, oh, it's not actually very good though, is it? And I remember everyone asking me, like, when I came out, what did you think of that? And me trying to, pretend that it was alright <laughs> <laughs> oh dear it just was um... my, my experience along those lines was a few years earlier when I, when I went with a um, couple of friends to see Alien 3 oh goodness and, oh, and, yeah, and we yeah. came out of it and we get, yeah, hadn't been talking during the film obviously but yeah, we came yeah. out of it and we, and we looked at each other and without a word we went to the, went to the nearest decent pub <laughs> Very <laughs> Which, wise, to be fair, had been on the cards anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, yes, but yeah, probably. It's not a terrible film. I think that's the problem. Alien 3 is not a terrible film, it's just a terrible alien film. Um, whereas Phantom Menace is just a bad film. It's just a bad film. There's good bits in it. Um, Qui Gon Jinn's very good. And um, Darth Maul's a good baddie for all the two lines that he gets in it before he gets bisexual. Um, <laughs> But oh my god, it's ponderous and Jake Lloyd. I'm sorry, Jake. He is the, possibly the worst child actor I've ever seen. Really doesn't help. Direction, yeah. but I, I know he's trying to be a contrast to Darth Vader, but it just undercuts the whole. 
And midichlorians... Oh, you've got me started now. <laughs> Let's measure exactly how much force you've got in you, shall we? Oh, fucking hell. Sorry. So here is the, the, the positive point. Uh, I, I believe it was Ewan McGregor um, who caused several filming delays because he just found it impossible not to make the vum sounds when he was doing the lightsaber <laughs> fighting. Well, there we go. That's a, that's a story worth telling from it. Oh, you've depressed me now. Um, but there we go. <laughs> Magnolia's better. I do think Magnolia's genuinely better than a lot, not all of those films. And in, in this, I mean, what, what, what I'm doing here, I think, by looking at Oscars and Oscar nominations and box office is saying, you know, the, these are the significant films either in critical or public appreciation terms. Yeah. And there are several here we don't hate. So, you know, that's good. That's good. I, it's certainly been better years. Of, it helps put the film we just watched in context and gives us an idea of the trends. I think it is helpful to do, isn't it? Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm feeling more positive about cinema listening to that Tom Ten list than the one where it was all lead the weapon for and oh jeez. <laughs> yeah, though, um, of the films that have topped the US box office since 99, yes. almost all of them are either sequels or, uh, based on somebody else's IP. There's very little that's of an original film. Um, uh, one of them is Finding Nemo and the other one is Avatar. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we can disqualify uh, Avatar shortly. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that's, you know, 20 years of film and it's just the same things. How many times do you need to tell the story of the Batman? Oh my god. How many Batman films have there been since 99? Uh, uh, at least four. Yeah. Uh, five, six, if you include the ones he's in. Uh, as the terrible DC cinematic universe, whatever they call that. Um, oh dear, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I was just feeling enthusiastic about cinema and you <laughs> just chilled. I'm sure we can find films that aren't part of that. Um, I'm not that, sure quite but... where we're going to stop. Uh, I think we, we've got to go through the, the new millennium, at least for a bit, aren't we? Um, oh, I'll see how we go. I mean, there are definitely films since this point that, that I, I have, that I like enough that I've put them on the list of ones to suggest to you and then you can say no no don't want to see it so. <laughs> I'm going to try and uh, watch more films that I haven't seen before that's, mm, that's yeah. my only resolution right well there we are we've made it to the end and, and a slightly bloated episode for a very long film uh, fair enough um, I, uh, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the top ten list um, and I have already watched uh three quarters of our next film so I feel like the weather has been <laughs> I'll catch up with you soon <laughs> Bye. It's dangerous to confuse children with angels.